Alrighty, so we have talked about eggs and dairy a bunch on this podcast in the past, but today we are coming at it from a slightly different angle. And we are going to dive deep into this idea of closing the loop when it comes to our livestock systems. This year, I've been thinking a lot more about how we can continue to make our chicken setup or our dairy animal setup more sustainable and how I can stop having to buy so many inputs to keep our operation flowing. You know, things like always buying grain, always buying chicks in the spring, always buying meat birds. How can I start to become a little more independent and a little more creative with these ideas? So I have the amazing Kate from Venison for Dinner on with me today. Many of you know her already. She is a powerhouse homestead mama. She's down to earth. She's real. And I really enjoyed this interview. So she is a mom of five in northern British Columbia, Canada, living on a mid-sized homestead where they raise milk cows, chickens, pigs, and gardens as best in the, as they can in their cold climate, totally relate to that, and their short growing season. Kate runs an Instagram account, a blog, a YouTube channel, all under the name Venison for Dinner, so go check her out. And this is her family's full-time business, allowing them to be a full-time family of homeschooling, homesteading, work from home, chaos. So like I said, Kate and I have a lot in common. She is brilliant when it comes to these topics. So grab your pen and paper and here we go. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Hey, Kate, welcome to Old Fashioned On Purpose. I am so excited to have you joining us today. I'm so thankful you invited me to be here. So if I remember correctly, I think we, like you're ready to have a baby fairly soon. Is that, is that correct? At this recording, I'm 38 weeks pregnant. Okay, yes. Because um, I know Michelle, who helps book podcast guests, she was like, uh, Kate said she'd be happy to do an interview, but she, as long as she's not in labor. And I'm like, well, you know, we'll be flexible. It's all good. It's how I book all my appointments these days. I can book, but as long as you understand, I made cancel. Yes. For obvious, very important reasons. So (laughs) it's, it's good. We made it. So I am super pumped about today's topic. I think you have a wealth of knowledge here. I'm really excited for this conversation. So as you know, we were talking a little bit about this before I hit record. And for those of you joining us, listening, the season focus this next set of podcast episodes going really, really deep into this idea of self-reliance. And, you know, I feel like self-sufficiency and self-reliance, those terms really kind of, we're numb to them because we hear them so much. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, what does that really look like? And so, you know, we're taking a different topic each episode and today's focus is going to be dairy and eggs. And we're going to dig really deep into those topics. But first, could you just kind of give us a little bit of background on your family and your homestead and what that looks like for you? 
So we live in Northern BC, which a lot of people feel is like really way up there, but we're actually not that way out there. Um, it's cold. So we're dealing with a winter climate. Um, six months of the year, we got snow and the other six months of the year, it's not really that warm. I think I wore a sweater almost every day last summer. We started growing our own food because we noticed that it tasted better. And I think that is the drive behind everything we do is that we want to eat good food. And that's why we do what we do. We have a couple dairy cows, pigs, laying chickens, meat chickens, cats, dog, the standard kind of homestead box of chocolates. Yep. And how do you go? I love to talk about gardening in ridiculous climates because that's where I live in a harsh, harsh climate. So how does your garden do in that cold climate? So what's interesting is that while we're probably the same zone, are you a three? I'm actually a five. So I'm, I'm more tropical than okay. you are. I never meet people who are colder. <laughs> oh yeah. So we're zone three and I meet a lot of other zone three people in the States, but zones just mean like, how cold do you get in winter? They don't mean what's your growing season like to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So while we have probably similar frost-free days to you, like 90 to hundred, if we're lucky. Yeah. Like, you know, June to September kind of same. Um, we don't get the heat units. We don't like, we can't grow corn. We can't grow tomatoes and peppers without serious effort. We just don't get the heat units unless we get an abnormally hot year. And the last two years, we're lucky to have 70 degree days in the summer. Wow. Okay. It's been brutal. It's been wet. It's making us completely rethink like I'm ditching trying to grow tomatoes and peppers and basil and all those things and just like, okay, what will get us through the winter? Because maybe we will get a hot year, but you know, what's this trend doing here? Why is it so cold all of a sudden? Yeah. Have you experimented at all? I know this is a little off topic, but just curiosity. Have you experimented at all with uh, cold frames or things like that? Does that help at all with your heat unit stuff? So last year we did a cold frame. We have a small greenhouse and we did a cold frame and it still just was not hot enough. Yeah. It still just barely did anything. So you put all this effort into trying to grow some tomatoes and peppers to get a couple meals worth at the end. And I need to channel that energy into something else like growing more carrots and onions for storage. Yes. Though less exciting, I have a better chance with them. Yeah. And I think that's a great point is the trade-off of you know, it's fun to say I grew tomatoes or show pictures of them on Instagram, but like what's really going to get you guys through the winter and what can you grow without pulling your hair out is also what I always ask myself. Yeah. No squashes, anything like that here. Yeah. Well, that is a unique, um, challenge for sure. I, I mean, we get cold and we have a short season, but we do get hot. Like we get to the hundreds in the summer. So we, you know, that's a little bit different for sure. The uh, first summer we moved here, we probably did have 90s to 100 and it was hot um but then the last two years it's just been really cold so is this the trend that's going to happen or are we going to go back to a really hot summer again yeah and that question is always yeah what you're left with mm -hmm. <laughs> what are we planning for long term so you got into homesteading for the food and the flavors and what has kept you here because you've been homesteading for quite a while if I recall 
Yeah. So my husband grew up kind of small scale homesteading. They always grew a garden because they couldn't afford not to. Um, your basic potatoes, carrots. He grew up in this climate and the odd chickens and bottle calf and that sort of thing. I grew up with grandparents who farmed, but we didn't. And then when I got to my teens, I was like, hey, I'd like to have chickens. And my dad's like, sure. And I was like, really? I could, I could get chickens? He says, well, we have a barn. We have a whole barn. We could get things. So before I knew it, we had the homestead box of chocolates. And we tried all these different things. And I just was so connected to it. I really didn't have a lot of friends. I've always beat to my own drum. Yep. And when you're 12 and 13 and you're raising your own meat birds and you're, you know, shearing your sheep on the weekend, people think you're really weird. Now that I'm in my twenties, I'm the cool person. You're super cool now. I'm so cool now. <laughs> oh, how the tables have turned. Right. <laughs> yep. So I was always, I always belonged in the barn. They're always happy to see you. And that really, you know, got me hooked on it. And there was times in our life where due to where we lived, we couldn't have animals after being married. And I always felt so lost. And I always tried to do whatever I could, whether it was meat birds or a few laying hens. I just needed to have some sort of animal. And we lived on a small island where land was very expensive. And we just saw things politically going where we didn't want to go there and restrictions, getting more restricted. So we decided to pick up our family and move a thousand miles north to my husband's hometown where for what we sold our little house on an acre, we could buy 34 acres and a hobby farm. So we, in doing so, it greatly opened up our options for what we could grow. And honestly, we just feel more and more inspired to grow more and more of our own food now that we have more land. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of listeners could could echo that feeling of identity with it. I know I can, and I hear a lot of people talk, just what you said, you know, we don't, some of us don't fit in speaking for myself with, with humans as much as maybe others do. And so that identity of homesteading and it's okay to be different and it's okay to not be like all the other girls, I think is, is pretty cool. And it's, it's a really common theme as well as the self-sufficiency piece. So I don't know what, I mean, exactly what it's like up in Canada over the last year. I know it's somewhat similar to what we've had down here in the U.S. as far as some of the turmoil and exciting times with pandemics and such. Have you guys seen any of the food insecurities or things like that up there like we have down here in the States? Food prices are going up like crazy. And that's really made us reassess. Like every time I go to do a bulk grocery order and I'm like, that costs what now? I'm like, well, I guess we're not buying that anymore. Just more and more things are going up in price. And we already had higher food costs to start because Canada's food supply isn't subsidized in the same way as the U S food supply is. Mm -hmm. It's been really great for some of our food industries. Um, but overall, like to start last year, there was, you'd go to the grocery store and there would be empty shelves and there'd be limits on things. There isn't that anymore, but the prices are climbing steadily. Yeah, for sure. And how, how, how have you kind of pivoted? Have you, have you made any changes or 
changes of focus as you've seen the prices go? Has that affected your homesteading efforts in any way? Yes. So, oh, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, That's okay. We can, pregnancy we can edit out. Yes. Yeah, we can totally edit out anything we need to. Um, <laughs> when it comes to gardening, we are looking more at seed saving and we only bought um, open pollinated seeds so that we could try and save whatever possible of our own. I'm not going to go crazy and try and save like onions and carrots and biennials like that, but the things that are easier to save and we're going to plan our garden accordingly. We kind of have two garden plots, one kitchen garden at the house and one large garden kind of down in the barnyard. So we'll, you know, what things that need to be separated to make sure they're not cross pollinating and, you know, being better about actually labeling my rows. So I know what varieties they are, not just... <laughs> Oh, we start them. off with such good intentions and then things just happen. Like for me, it's every year. Yeah. So my husband is very into gardening. Um, he took one look at my carrots last year and told me I wasn't growing carrots again. And I was like, that's fine. You, you, you show me how you can grow yes. carrots. I would love <laughs> exactly. to see your carrots. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that looking at that, as far as gardening wise has been big for us. And then with the animals, I don't know what happened with chickens last year on a large scale, but whenever I asked on Instagram, like, Hey, anybody else having these sort of problems? People were telling me that all their Facebook poultry groups were having, people were having issues with hatcheries with unhealthy chicks. And we had this thing with our meat birds where when they were two to three weeks old, they just started imploding on themselves. Ooh. And I've raised meat birds for 16 years. I'm not a newbie at this. Yeah. And they were imploding on themselves and um, hemorrhaging out their hind end and like just absolutely horrific. And our laying chicks from then, they, you know, all of a sudden, you know, one day it got a little colder once they were older and so many of them died, just not hardy stock. Mm -hmm. And we've already felt like we're not always happy with the hatchery chicks, like it can be really hit and miss. So we decided that we are going to boldly proclaim we are not buying from hatcheries this year, at least. Maybe we will again in the future, but for now, we're taking that into our own hands. So tell me what that looks like, because I like the sounds of this. So it means a totally different style of raising chickens in terms of it's not one and done. We're not going to pick up our 50 meat birds at the post office and then 10 weeks later butcher them. It's going to look a little different. We are looking at our laying flock and we have a lot of heavyweight breeds already. And luckily the ones that aren't heavyweight, we can tell because they have green eggs or they have bantam eggs. Mm -hmm. And we invested in a Brinzy incubator, which was definitely an investment. We bought the 56 egg one. Nice. And up here in Canada, that was $800. However, we could easily spend $500 at a hatchery in a year because our hatcheries aren't cheap either. I'm just going to pause you right there. That is such a good point because I know there's a lot of sticker shock that happens when people are buying homestead equipment. You know, like I can't pay $800 for a piece of equipment, but you have to look at the long-term payout. Like you just said, like you could be easily spending that a year and not realizing it and paying a little bit more this year, getting the equipment is going to set you up for so much more success down the road. 
Absolutely. So today we set our first hatch. We have saved an incubator full of eggs between us and a neighbor, and we're only saving breeds that are dual purpose heavyweight. So that means dual purpose, meaning they will produce eggs, they'll be laying hens, but the roosters also get to a substantial size, all but slower growing, that we can eat them too. And when the hens are ready to be retired, they are heavy enough that they can become a decent chicken soup. Because if you've ever tried to butcher something like an Americana, you'll know there is nothing on them. So we have breeds like Australorp, Columbia Rock, um, Light Sussex. We actually kept back a few um, of a heritage meat breed called Mistral Gris that's based off of a barred rock. They kind of look like a barred rock. So we have a few of those and we're going for it. We will be giving up a bit of laying in terms of if you're used to only high production laying chickens, dual purpose lay a little less than that. But that's part of embracing the seasonality of it, I think as well. We think of vegetables and fruits as seasonal and we don't think of meat and eggs and dairy as seasonal. And that's a huge thing to embrace in my mind. I agree. I, I, I totally agree that we sometimes we just get so spoiled with thinking that, oh, eggs should be available year round. And sometimes I wonder if maybe our bodies would be happier if we took breaks off of certain things, maybe less eggs for a season, less dairy for a season. I think it's, I think there's times a year when we crave more of it too. And a lot of that really ties into the seasonality of it as well. But we're also spoiled with how we can preserve things these days. Definitely different than the old timers. That's, that's a fact. Um, So you're, so you're saying you're moving completely away from like your Cornish cross or any of those type of more modern meat breeds. Yes. So we have tried three different types of rustic broilers, they call them over the last 10 years and have not loved any of them. They're okay. We had a bit of a hot mess this last year where we did get a batch of Mistral Grease. We had them in two chicken tractors and we were cleaning out the garden and all these edible flowers, a bunch got chucked in one of the chicken tractors and apparently they're not edible to chickens. Oh, did they they kill them or? we killed a whole pile of them and we don't even, we can't even quite figure out what plant it was, but I only had edible flowers in that garden patch. Oh man. And we, yeah. That's a hard lesson. It was a hot mess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, okay. So I like where you're headed with this because it's really hard for those of you who are wondering why you just don't breed meat breeds. A lot of times are really hard for like a homesteader to propagate. Would you agree? Yeah, because they're not a breed. They're a hybrid. So a Mistral Gris, for example, is four different breeds that is very specifically bred. And a Cornish is a Cornish cross and it's, I don't know what it's crossed with and how they keep those genetics going. Yep. I don't even know if I want to know. It's yeah. I feel like it's beyond the level of chicken breeding expertise I'm willing to go into (laughs) at this point in my life. With the chickens, with self-sustainability, two other areas I feel there are feed and your coop. So a lot of people in this cold climate think you need to have a heat lamp. But in my understanding and experience, 
it's actually better to have chickens who are climatized to not having a heat lamp. And people here who have a heat lamp will have it just for convenience, just above the waterer. So our chicken coop is insulated and it has two screen doors, but then it also has insulated doors that we close when it's cold. And just that, and just having kind of the right amount of chickens for your size of coop, which I couldn't tell you any statistics there, but if you have an, you know, if your coop is near capacity, the warmth of those chickens is gonna help keep the coop warm as well. And when you have a heat lamp on, and if your chickens are relying on that heat lamp, and then you have a power outage, your chickens are not acclimatized to that cold and you're gonna lose a lot of chickens. Yes, for which sure. Which we have had. So, yeah, have you, do you have a backup heat lamp when it, like it's super, super cold or you're like zero heat lamp whatsoever? We were minus 38 Celsius, which I think is where Fahrenheit and Celsius meet up. And my husband turned on a heat lamp and he came inside. He said, I turned on the heat lamp. And I said, you go turn that off right now. They are fine without it. And also you don't want to see our power bill when a heat lamp's running all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do, because people say, well, then what about the water? We have those metal bucket style waters. You just tip on their sides and we just have two of them. So when you go, one lives in the basement when you go to feed the chickens in the morning, you fill it up and you take it out and you bring in the frozen one. And then in the evening when you do it, you f the other one is thawed by that point, you fill it up and you bring it out and you bring in the frozen one. It means you always have a chicken poop covered waterer in your basement, but that's probably not the worst thing in my basement right now. <laughs> yes, I, I, I feel you. Um, yeah, so feasibly you're having your whole chicken setup structure, whatever, without power. Like you could be completely yes. off grid without having to have solar or something like that. Where I do cheat there is we have a light on part of the time because we're so far north. We have a lot of dark days. Mm, true. Um, so chickens need 14 hours of daylight, I think it is. Mm -hmm. We get maybe four to five months of that. Because if you look at equinox, which is in March and in September, Anytime below that, we're well below. Like we have times where we have eight hours of daylight in a day. Right, right. So, so we don't have, that, yeah. we don't have a timer. Oh, we have a timer on. So it's not on all the time. And there is ways that it's kinder to the chickens. Like you have it that it gets light in the morning and then they, they get dark naturally with the day. You don't just all of a sudden plunge them into darkness. Yes. And it's not good to have a light on all the time either. That really messes with them. Yep. But that's kind of, we give them a break. We let them, they stop laying for a couple months and then we turn the light back on because I can only deal with freeloaders for so long. Sure. And, and you think, I mean, if you were in a different state <laughs> with more natural light, you would be, they would be having those months anywhere they, anyway, where they would be in production. So it's, it's not that unnatural. You're still giving them the break. So to me, that feels really common sense. Another thing that we're doing though, is by hatching this early in the year, they should start laying in like August and September so that there's a good chance we could get to a point where if we only hatched early in the year, they should start laying by that time of year, even without a light, continue laying through the winter. So that's another kind of goal in self-sustainability self is hatching early enough in the year that they could lay without light. And maybe we'll do trials with that at some point. I like that kind of nerdy thing, like have a coop of pullets and then the coop with the light on and see how they do. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Because we do have two chicken coops. I'll okay. see if I can convince my husband on that one. Do some science experiments. 
in the name of homeschooling, right? It's, it's yes. for the kids, honey. Um, tell us a little bit more about your um, brooder or your incubator. Sorry, I actually, so the, for those of you who can't see Kate, we're on a video recording right now, but she had to turn off her incubator. The eggs are not in it, but she turned it off before the call so she, you wouldn't hear the incubator fan on the podcast. So this is this is legit, but tell us a little bit more. Are you planning on just doing one batch a year? Or are you going to be doing multiple batches? What's your plan? I plan to do multiple batches, kind of just see where I get with eggs and egg supply. I might at some point buy some fancy eggs in terms of like purebred Australorp and um, Bielfield, Bielfielder. I don't know how to say it, but there's a couple, there's a, a farm an hour and a half away from us that does purebred breeds. So maybe that might be good to kind of inject those lines into my flock. We bought a Brinzy 56EX. So it's got like an automatic water pump and like automatic hydrometer, like it's an automatic turner, the automatic, like it has a one or two points in a day where it gets cooler to mimic a hen leaving the eggs. We have tried the styrofoam incubators and we don't have central heat. So our house temperature fluctuates a lot Mm -hmm. and a styrofoam incubator can't handle that. And they can't handle colder rooms either. So this isn't the warmest room in the house, but it's the most steady temperature and it's safe from children because it's our bathroom door that's always closed. Yes. Yes, I'm recording it in my bathroom right now. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it takes. So we decided that if we were going to go for it, we were going to go for it. And maybe we could sell some chicks down the road later this year. They're worth about $6 a chick where we live. Just straight run. So that means there'll be mixed hens and roosters. And really, you think it wouldn't take that many rounds. Like if we hatch enough for ourselves, and then maybe hatch two rounds to sell, the incubator is paid for itself in a year. Exactly. And that's like More a, whole, paid for itself. a whole new level of closing the loop and that self-sufficiency idea. Because not only are you supplying all of that for your own family, not no longer needing as many outputs, um, but you're also supplying it for other people locally and using that income to help justify your costs. So I, I think that's brilliant. Our homestead goals for the most part within every sector of our homestead is to sell enough to make ours not cost any out of pocket. Mm -hmm. And there's some areas where it can't work that way because raw dairy is illegal in Canada, but I can sell a calf. I can, you know, other animals can pull the weight for those dairy cows and they pay their way in our groceries. So absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, What do you guys do for your chicken feed? So this is one where we've struggled. We have a local grain farm because it's, there's not a lot of grain farms up here. So we have one and he does mix and sell feed. We love his cow feed. We love his pig feed. His chicken feed is so-so. There's something missing in it. And everybody says that. Yeah. And we did try raising all our laying hands and meat birds on it one year. And it was a hot mess. Something's missing in it. So how we're kind of balancing that is we still buy the laying pellets at the feed store. We don't have an availability of organic or anything. Um, that's just not, not a yeah. thing up here. Same. Where we used to live, we could buy bags of organic layer feed, but it's not available here. 
So we have one feeder full of the layer pellets and then we have one feeder full of the local chicken feed. So they still have the other things available. And then whenever we're in excess of milk, we feed them clabber. So milk that has soured and gone into curds and whey because that's such good protein and fat and everything for them. And do you, have you played with fodder at all? I haven't played with fodder because I don't really want it in my basement. Yes. And I, I don't know where else it would go. Yep. Yeah. I think it's something that if I just lightly plug it to my husband enough times that maybe he'll think about it, but it's not a project I can take on. Sure. No, that makes sense. And I love that you're still, I mean, you're doing what you can with what you have because there are places in the country that have amazing organic feed mills, but like you guys, we don't, we have wheat farmers here, but that's it. And you can't feed chickens hundred percent wheat all the time. No. Um, so, you know, we kind of piecemeal and limp along and we'll do scraps and extra milk and things like that, but we'd still too sometimes have to depend on regular old feed store feed. So, and I don't you know. think that's, I think it's still better than giving up on raising chickens. It's Absolutely. still, they still taste better. I still would rather have my own supply. Absolutely. And it's one of those, you know, sometimes I'll get emails, people be like, how do you know that all of your feed is hundred percent GMO free organic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I, I don't, but there's also, I still know it's better than the grocery store eggs. And I still know that I have more control over it. So it's one of those, it's not about perfection. I, I'd say to anyone listening, who's worried about some of those details, it's not about perfection, but it's just getting a little bit better. And slowly you get different options that come into play that will improve it over time, but sometimes it's not all at once. I describe it in two different ways. One is good, better, best. Yeah. So good is you are feeding your family. If that's grocery store eggs and discount bread, you're feeding your family and that is what matters. Can we step one step more better? Okay, we're raising our own. Are we as picky about what they're getting fed and that sort of thing? No, but it is better than our good. And then we get to best. Best would be, I grow my own chicken feed and yeah. I mix it all myself and everything's fermented and foddered and only organic and they don't have a light and all my hens naturally broody and hatch all the eggs and I never use an incubator and they're a self-sustaining unicorn flock. Yes. <laughs> I'm not there. I'm not there either. Not, not yet. Maybe someday, but I feel like so, you and I are on the same page on a lot of, a lot of these areas. I feel like people look at that best and if they can't reach that best, they give up and don't even try. So, you know, done is better than perfect. Amen, sister. Yes. Yes. I like it. Amen. Um, okay. So super good info here on your chickens. Let's switch gears a little bit over to the queens of the homestead, the dairy cows. Um, tell us a little about your cow operation. So we have Jersey cows. They are pretty much the only dairy breed other than Holstein available here. And I don't do Holsteins. Yeah. I, I like cream too much. Yep. Yep. So we have Mossy who is five and she's going to have her fourth calf, third calf, fourth calf, fourth calf in May. We've had her for just over a year. And Jessa just had her first calf in December. So we have had dairy cows for the better part of 12 years. They are a big part of our life. And 
I just love cows so much. And there's nothing like a dairy cow and that relationship with a dairy cow, a good dairy cow. Yes. If they're not a good one, sell them because it's not worth your time. <laughs> yep. Yep. So they are, they're nothing. The, then the other thing I'm seeing trends with is people are looking for dairy cows or they're looking for raw milk. And it needs to be A2 and grass fed and all these things. And we're, we're not. I actually don't know what my girls are. I'm going to get them tested pretty soon because our calf is a heifer. So once she was old enough to be tested, I was going to send all of them in to be tested. So Mossy last year freshened at seven gallons a day. Nice. So that was a lot of milk. And that allowed us to feed a lot of skim milk to our meat chickens, which was nice just to be able to every day be feeding them clabber. I would skim the cream off because I'm selfish. Yes. I'm not going to get cream. Are you serious? Like, yeah, chickens don't get cream. Nobody gets some the people, cream. <laughs> well, some people I see if they have lots of milk, they'll just feed the milk straight to the chickens or pigs. And I'm like, no, no, no. You've got to take the cream first. Yeah. You've got to take really, the cream first. You do. And sometimes people ask me, do you sell cream? And I'm like, no, I'll sell you. Well, I guess I would sell milk, but I would not skim. I'm like, I am way too selfish to skim cream off, collect it and then sell it. Like I, yeah. I can't. I can't do that. I just can't. Yeah. Not happening here. Even feeding skim to the chickens. My husband's like, can't you make more cheese? And I'm like, we don't need more cheese. We're good. We're good. Yeah. Seven, seven gallons is a day is a lot. Like for those people, for anyone listening who's not had a milk cow, like it adds up really fast. Like it adds up real quick in the fridge. It, that's two days. The fridge is full. Yep. You can't not deal with milk. That seven gallons is overwhelming. So right now we're just at the point where Mossy is getting dried up because cows need to be dry for two months minimum before calving. So we're doing it a little longer um, because I'm about to calve myself. We figure let's get down to only one cow milking before that. And we've been sitting at about four gallons a day between the two cows. Jessa doesn't produce a lot. She's feeding a heifer calf and that's her value is mostly going there in growing us a future milk cow. Yes. So four gallons a day is totally manageable to me. That's either a wheel of cheese or I skim the cream and make a batch of butter. And then the skim either goes to the pigs or it makes mozzarella. Um, I make all our own dairy products for the last almost two years. I committed that we were not buying dairy at the store. My husband cheats occasionally and buys sour cream if I'm not keeping up with it. Yep. But other than that, we don't buy cheese or butter or anything. If we don't have enough, we do without. Okay. I like it. And this has allowed a dairy cow to be even more of a money saving for us because I find it very common that people have a milk cow and they don't really make very many things. And sure, it's nice to not buy milk and yogurt at the store, but where you really start saving in my mind is where, when you get into the cheeses, cheese is expensive and it adds up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Have you got into making much cheese? I have. um, I had a couple bad experiences with cheddar and then I was like, I need to devote more focused effort to this. But, you know, I've done a lot of, you know, the mozzarellas and the cottage cheeses and all of the, the soft stuff. And I've had a few aged cheeses that turned out good, but 
it was, I wasn't consistent enough to really figure out why they worked and why the other ones didn't. So it's something I have another cheese fridge, um, like a wine cooler that I'm going to be converting. So I need to, that's a goal for this year is to kind of open that door back up. So you are my favorite sort of person who I get like very emotionally invested in you making cheese because it's not as hard as people make it out to be. Cheddar, I think should be like one of the last cheeses you learn to make. Okay. Cause it takes so long to age that it takes so long before you know if it's good. And that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Is I'm like, how do I know? I don't even remember that batch, let alone what I did or how, what temperature was so I can improve it for next time. Well, apparently some people take notes. I don't know who would do that. Like (laughs) who takes notes? There's cheese making like notebooks Notebooks where you take notes. notes. I have never taken notes. That would be what Christian would say. He's like, just write it all down. And I'm like, uh, but I'm in the moment. And I just don't. (laughs) So I suggest people start with cheeses like Gouda only takes six weeks before you can eat it. And my method of making Gouda after it's come out of the press, it brines and then it air dries for a couple days. Then we vacuum seal it and put it in the back of the normal fridge. No special fridge. Oh, it just goes in the back of the milk fridge, vacuum sealed. And in six weeks we eat it. Okay. That takes a huge variable out, not having to worry about the whole fridge situation. I don't have the mental space for fancy aging. Mm-hmm. I like um, that. Be, could that be like a tweet or a quote? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I um, part of Venison for Dinner is I have a monthly membership. And in the membership, I have taught cheese making. And I've taught Asiago, Burkes, or butter cheese, and Gouda. And burkes is another one that only takes a month before you can eat it. Okay. That's, and it tastes doable. good after yeah. a month. Yeah. You try tasting a cheddar after a month and you'll be sorely disappointed. For sure. So do any of those need, a, like none of those are needing a cheesecake. Are you doing all vacuum in regular fridge? Vacuum seal into the fridge. Oh my goodness. If a this cheese is- can't be made like that, yeah. I don't make it. Okay. This is life-changing. Um, okay. I'm going to have to go check out some more of your cheese stuff because, well, we're, we're dried up now, whereas we're going to be calving in April, but once we freshen again, then maybe then you'll be, how many do you have freshening in April? We have two freshening in April Two. Yes. Are you, you hand milk or do you machine milk? We hand milk. We don't have power in our barn, but we have like a, an extension cord for the water heater. We have looked, we did machine milk years ago when we had a couple milk cows and I only had little kids, but we didn't have a very good machine and we fought with it a lot and we decided we'd rather just hand milk. Yeah, sure. And especially, I mean, if we're talking self-sufficiency off-grid, like obviously having the skill to hand milk efficiently is really important. And cows don't necessarily bounce between machine milking and hand milking well. Some do, some don't. Yep. Like our heifer has never been machine milked. She might hit the roof if you tried to put a machine on her. Right, right. So yeah, no, I agree. We we just got a machine this year and I fought it forever. Um, I'm like, it's fine, I'll just do it my, myself. And then just, we got more cows. We actually sold a couple cows this year because we had like four or five. And I was like, I don't need this many milk cows. This might be excessive. That's a lot of milk cows. <laughs> a lot of, I had this like during COVID last, year I had this grand aspiration I was very inspired because everybody was looking at local food in a different eye so I was like we're gonna we're gonna get all these cows going and we're gonna get a machine and maybe I could sell milk locally because we can do that in Wyoming it is actually legal um and then life and business and 
everything else. And I'm like, maybe that wasn't my best idea. Maybe I need to be putting my energy into other things. And that's how I feel with a lot of areas. Like we could raise more pigs and sell more pigs, but it's not really going to make us much more money. And it's a better use of our time and my time for me to put energies into my online businesses than to be trying to raise another pig or two. Exactly. And it's that balancing act. Yeah, for sure. Yes. So with dairy, how we have, I think of self-sustainability, not necessarily on a just my land level, but within my community level. Mm -hmm. So that is where dairy and pork as well does really well for us because I can buy a mix. It's peas, oats, and barley, all locally grown and mixed. Mary just goes and picks up a 1500 pound mini bag of it at a time. And we feed that both to our pigs and our cows. Oh, nice. So with that, and then we can grow a bit of hay, but we don't have a lot of hay land, but just down the road, we have a farmer friend who he grows lots of hay, cuts lots of hay. I don't know how you. Yeah, either one. (laughs) And we trade him. We have more pasture than we need. So he pastures some of his beef cows at our place in summer. And then we get hay from him to get our cows through winter. So we're not out of pocket for hay. This year we're actually, um, would need to buy a bit of hay. Um, But instead my husband was helping him fix his barn for calving. And he's like, hey, why don't you trade for hay? And Mary's was like, absolutely. I would love to trade for hay. So that worked out well that we're not out of pocket for it. And I think that's a huge level of self-sustainability is not being constantly out of pocket for something. Yes. You can work on those local trades and ties. And I don't think we're meant to do it all ourselves, especially if we have resources within our community that we can trade. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, you know, I think sometimes we get a little hung up on and I, I say it all the time, self-sufficient, self-sufficient, but is it, it's not necessarily, I'm like, we can't do everything. Like we look at the communities like the Amish or the Mennonites and they're really good at our crowdsourcing or working together, or this person specializes in this thing. I think the key is, is how can we make our communities more close knit versus always relying on outputs from far away. And I love that you're doing that. I mean, you're nailing it with your dairy operation. I mean, that's truly local milk. The, the, and- the cow's local, the feed's local. It's beautiful. Yeah, our cows were born just down the road from us. We have a dairy farm, a Jersey dairy. We live in kind of a dairy belt. Within our province, there's three fertile valleys that are all dairy centrals. So dairy farms aren't spread all over our province. There's the odd one elsewhere, but pretty much they're within three valleys. And one of those is ours. So pretty much everybody has Holsteins, but this one farm has Jerseys. And they have found that there's a niche for family cows. Yes, absolutely. And they can't sell enough. They don't have enough to even provide the quantity that they could sell, especially with COVID last year. They were hitting them up for milk cows left, right, and center. So then they had to also be responsible in that in vetting people because there was a lot of people that just weren't good fits. And they weren't willing to sell their cows just for the sake of selling a cow. They're very attached to their cows as well. So I, I appreciate that they're like that too. Yeah. 
I do too. That's cool. Yeah. And because cows are a big commitment and I feel like sometimes homesteaders get overzealous a little bit and it is a, it's a beautiful idea and it's really attractive, but the cows are different than goats. And sometimes I think people sometimes take for granted that they're a lot bigger. They can hurt you a little more effectively than a goat can. So yeah. you need to have the, the proper setup and the proper mindset going into it. I can't tell you how often I tell people don't buy a heifer. Like the amount of people who are getting into cows for the first time and they're buying a heifer. It's like, no, no. Well, it's a good deal. Well, it's not going to be a good deal down the road when you have to deal exactly. with this heifer. Yeah. You're and you came from my old, yep. You came from a horse background, right? You had horses. Yes. You had horses before yep. cows. And yes. then yes. Oakley is your first, is mm -hmm. your milk cow, right? Oakley is the first You're, one. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a heifer when you got her. She was. And the only reason that worked, and because people ask me, how did you halter break her? I'm like, well, I halter broke her, I halter broke her like a horse. And they're like, well, well, how do you do that? And I'm like, it, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's like, it's hard to explain in a blog post. You, it just take, it was a lot of years of working with horses for me to be able to halter break Oakley. Not that it can't be done by someone without horse experience, but it's a project. Totally. So that's the only time when people go, well, I really want to get this heifer. I say, well, do you have any large animal experience? Do you have horse experience? Do you have experience training horses? And people are like, oh yeah, I, you know, I love horses, trained horses for years. I'm like, okay, you are actually a good fit to buy a heifer. Yep. You, you're not afraid to, you know, they kick you kick back. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. You, the people get intimidated by the cow and they end up letting the cow be the herd boss. And you are the herd boss. And if yeah. you're not, they will be. Exactly. And that's, and sometimes I think people are always like scared to put up boundaries with the horses or cattle because they think it's mean. But I'm like, if you look at other cows with each other, or other horses with each other, or any animal, that's how they, mm -hmm. that's how they communicate. It's like my space, get out. And if you don't, there, there are consequences. <laughs> so oh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's that mindset for sure. And that was hard for me to start. And I let some cows walk all over me. And I bet you a couple of the cows we sold, if I had known how to be a proper herd boss, we wouldn't have had to sell them. Yep. Learning curves. Lots All the learning curves. curves. Yeah. So, well, I think we've gone a little over our time, which is totally cool. I actually, I say that we don't have an exact time for the podcast, but uh, I, I don't know. We're good. We're, this is a really good conversation. Do you have anything to leave listeners with a bit of advice or any last thoughts as we wrap up? I think don't be afraid to try it. If you've researched it, people spend years researching and never just jump in. And I think if you have the resources and you have, you know, you think you have the time, then why not try? Yes. I mean, there's always going to be failure. If you have livestock, you have dead stock. Yep. But you'll never know if you don't try. And Absolutely. that's kind of my guiding principle. If you don't try, how will you know? Yeah. Jumping out of the plane and building the parachute on the way down. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So how can folks find you and all your amazing content? Can you give us a couple handles? I'm venison for dinner everywhere. Okay. So I'm primarily on Instagram. That's my jam. There's a bit of a YouTube channel. There's a blog. There's a Facebook account, but I don't know if it really does much. <laughs> I'm not there much. Um, yeah, mostly Facebook Instagram is, eh. is where you'll find me. 
and I hope Sweet. to see you there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for spending some of your precious pre-baby time <laughs> with us. Um, I really appreciate it. You're a wealth of information and yeah, best wishes as you go into labor and add to your family over the next couple of weeks and hatch your chickens and do all the spring that spring stuff the homestead requires. So oh, I'm, I'm excited for spring. Time. Yes, me too. So that is it for today's episode, my friends. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow Kate over at Venison for Dinner. And as you know, I'm active on Instagram too. So you can come check out my account as well if you haven't already. So we will chat again on the next episode of the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast.